Good morning. It's Bible Mondays, praise God. In chapel on Mondays this semester, uh, we're joining Jesus and his disciples as recorded in the Gospel of John. And so today, I want to invite us to take a deep dive together into chapter 2. And the topic is Jesus is building the real temple. On one hand, those of you that have studied New Testament know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels because they give a summary of Jesus' life chronologically, where on the other hand, Jesus's, John's purpose in his gospel is to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so we call John's gospel an apology, which is in essence an argument or a defense of an idea or of someone or something. In chapter 1, from which Charlie spoke last week, John tells us that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then later in chapter 1, we read that when John saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so these first disciples left their families and their comfortable homes to follow Jesus. They were followers of Christ in a transition, just like many of us are here, just like many people all around the world. Well, these disciples over the next three years sat at the feet of the master teacher and witnessed many signs. And as he transformed their lives, they became part of his story. Uh, just by way of overview, John's gospel has four main parts. And the first part is the prologue, which is the first 18 verses of chapter 1. And then the second part begins in verse 19 of that same chapter 1, and it extends all the way to chapter 12, verse 50, where John presents seven miraculous proofs of Jesus' glory to capture and convince the new people so that they would believe in Him. For example, He in chapter 2 changes the water into wine, and in chapter 4 He heals the royal official's son, and then He heals an impotent man at the pool near the sheep gate in Jerusalem in chapter 5, and in chapter 6 He feeds the 5,000, and then He walks on the water, and then in chapter 9 He heals the blind man, and then in chapter 11 he raises Lazarus from the dead. Over the next several weeks this semester, we're going to be walking through those chapters and entering into those stories together with these disciples as they follow Jesus. And then the third part of the Gospel of John begins in chapter 13 and extends through chapter 20, verse 31, and it's called the Book of Glory. And th this section relates the events leading up to and surrounding Jesus' trial and His death and His resurrection. And then the fourth and final part is called the epilogue, chapter 21. And in the epilogue, we read about Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to His disciples who've now gone fishing by the seaside, Tiberius, and you'll remember they caught a miraculous catch of fish that day. And then He has a conversation with Peter and reinstates him because Peter's embarrassed by denying Christ at the crucifixion. Well, this week, our teaching comes from John chapter 2, and here we find two main events. And as we're 
thinking about these two main events, I want us to be asking ourselves, what's the connection between these two events? The first event is the miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and it is talked about in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. And here we're told that Jesus' mother is there, along with his, his disciples, and that early in the feast, the wine runs out. Kind of embarrassing for the host. What do we do is the question that's circulating there at that wedding feast. And at first, Jesus says to his mother, well, my hour has not yet come. But then he instructs his, the servants there to fill some stone jars that are nearby with water. And then miraculously, as you remember, they take it to the host and the water is turned into wine. Wish we had more time to dig into that event because this first event is an intriguing introduction to the second event that will be our main focus for today. This first event is full of symbolism that we could unpack and hopefully we'll be able to do at a different time. The second event is called the cleansing of the temple, and it's described in the same chapter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And the overarching theme of this whole chapter 2 is the Passover. So there's a hint in response to the question we've asked earlier, what's the connection between these two events? The theme is the Passover, and our attention throughout this chapter is focused on Jesus, who is the spotless Lamb of God. And so these two events point to the Last Supper and also to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The miracle of the wine in Canaan, the first part of this chapter, represents symbolically Jesus' blood, which then is the juice that we partake of when we have the Lord's Supper. And the temple in Jerusalem in the last half of this chapter refers or is, is symbolized, symbolizes Jesus' body, which is the church. And so, with this overview in mind, let's read the verses of this portion about the cleansing of the temple, verses 13 and following. John chapter 2, verse 13 and following says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both the sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, let's look at the two key verses I want us to focus on this morning, verses 19 and 21, where Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And then verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. First of all, I'd like to invite you to note with me the contrast in the temple that day. On one hand is the Jewish sacrificial system at work there in that temple in Jerusalem. 
The merchants were there exploiting the people and defiling the temple. And on the other hand, Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come into that temple and He's come to take away the sins of the world. I want to suggest that this passage signals a fundamental paradigm shift in salvation history. A paradigm shift from the ritualistic to Christ. From the legalistic and ethnocentristic exclusivism of of a people that kept focusing on themselves and revolved around a sacrificial system to a personal relationship. A, a, A paradigm shift from a focus on a place and a building made with human hands to the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ our Savior. Well, now, as we're thinking about this passage and we're, we're thinking about what Jesus did in that temple, I've scratched my head for a long time and asked, but why did Jesus react with anger? What was He so upset about? And then secondly, this question that I want us to keep thinking about, what is this paradigm shift all about? And then what does it mean for us. <clears throat> to put this event in perspective and understand how it relates to us, it will help us to consider again God's overall plan of salvation. And so let's just real quickly in broad strokes name a couple of the key events. First of all, at creation, God created what some call a global temple, His universe, with the firmament and the stars and an earth and creatures. And then He created Adam and Eve. He wanted to have a personal relationship with us. And so He created this beautiful temple with the goal of allowing us to be in communion with Him continually. But the second stage or the second event, the second play in that, in that, that drama is the fall where sin entered and destroyed the relationship between Adam and Eve and God Almighty the Creator. And so God, the third scene, in love reaches out to restore us. And we have a picture throughout the whole Old Testament of God persistently reaching out to restore His relationship with His creation and with us created in His image. And then we have Jesus the Word who becomes flesh and dwells among us. And then we're called to be His disciples and part of His body, the church. God's first covenant begins when Israel is chosen by God. We call this the call of Abraham, where God said to Abraham, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And here I want to underline this part, you will be a blessing. God calls us into relationship to be a blessing to others. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is an important question for us to be asking ourselves as we follow Christ. Are peoples around us, all peoples, being blessed through us as we walk with Christ? Throughout the Old Testament, we learn about God's unconditional love and patience with the children of Israel. He brought them from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And He gave them Palestine, a land flowing with milk and honey. And At times they wandered away from Him, but He always lovingly drew them back to Himself. You see, Israel was chosen by God to be a blessing to the nations, but too often they were rebellious and legalistic and ethnocentristic like the rest of the world. And if we're honest about it, we have those tendencies ourselves too. For several hundred years, the Israelites worshipped in a portable tabernacle, which served them very well. 
following their escape from slavery in Egypt to their conquest of the Holy Land. Then the Israelites asked for a king like the other nations so they could imitate those nations. And so he gave them King Saul. And then Saul's son Solomon builds a temple, a physical place, made of human hands at God's direction where God could show his presence among his people. But sadly, the people of Israel did not live up to their calling to be a blessing to the nations of the world. But instead, often they just got hung up on themselves again. And meanwhile, the peoples of the world remained lost without salvation, without the good news of God's love for them. And so we're told that God established a new covenant with His people in the New Testament by sending Jesus, His Son, to us as our Lord and Savior. Scriptures tell us here, as we've just read in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Some translate, made His tabernacle among us, a place to dwell in our midst, became flesh. And then in the Gospel of Luke, we also read how Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. Scriptures say that the scroll of the, the, scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he says, because. And notice what follows this because. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has sent me to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then finally, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then we read how he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And everybody in the synagogue was looking at him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now that might have puzzled some people. What does he mean today? You see, the answer is Jesus saw the world through kingdom eyes. In fact, he could see at once two dimensions of reality. He could see the, the sinful sad conditions of people all around in the world in its fallen state, but he also had a, had a vision, had a picture of, of the kingdom coming to pass even in our midst. And he heralded that when he stated this. He was living in what some of us like to call the already and the not yet, that God has called us already to be a part of his kingdom, to live in that reality, to invite his spirit and his presence to live in us in spite of the fact that we're not yet satisfied because there's people that haven't heard and there are people that are suffering in all kinds of ways. And so throughout John's gospel, we'll see this as we walk through the gospel of John. Jesus is often misunderstood because, you see, he had an eternal view of a lost world in sin and bondage and of God's passionate desire for his people to be a blessing to the nations. And so as people of the kingdom, God invites us too to have that view of both dimensions of reality. On the one hand, to see the world and be realist and to see what's going on and be concerned about it, but at the same time, to capture a vision of what God is doing in our midst right now as we live and walk by faith in the kingdom. And so back to the question, why did Jesus react with anger that day in Jerusalem? Well, he was certainly upset, I'm sure, to see that his father's house had been turned into a market and was being desecrated. And I believe that he was also deeply troubled when he saw that the crowds were like people, like a shepherd without, like, like sheep without a shepherd, and that there were prisoners who were forgotten in captivity, and there were poor who were still hungry and abandoned, and there were sick who were languishing 
and in despair and the peoples of the earth that were marginalized. You see, throughout his ministry, Jesus showed a special concern for the last and the least and the lost. And I'm convinced that today his heart would be broken too. For centuries, the temple of Jerusalem had served as a shadow, as a prototype of the real temple of God to come, that God was building not with human hands. And uh, that day, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus declared that the fulfillment of God's prophecies was at hand. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again. You see, Jesus is building the real temple in our midst, even though at times we're blinded by the illusion that what's really real is the physical stuff that we touch and feel. Yet those things will pass away, but this real temple that God's building is eternal, and He's building that temple today in our midst. He's building that temple in this place. He's building that temple in our, li- in our lives as we embrace Him and follow Him and allow Him to transform us. And this real temple is not made with human hands because Jesus is the true Lamb of God, and we are invited to be part of His body, the church. You see, this paradigm shift, I like to think about it, is like about the lenses through which we view reality and choose to center our lives. And the best way to illustrate this is found in Pilate's confusion while questioning Jesus later on in John chapter 18, where Jesus answers to him, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus tells him. And Pilate retorted, what is truth? And then earlier in John chapter 8, Jesus had declared, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then later on in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, these insights from the Word and their connection were brought to my attention, especially by a book by Parker Palmer to know as we are known. And his observation is right on. Jesus, the living truth of God, was standing right in front of Pilate, and Pilate used the wrong pronoun. He asked in his question, what is truth, instead of who is truth? For centuries, Israel had focused more on the what, a temple made with human hands and rituals and sacrifices and laws and other things. Yes, God was doing good things among the children of Israel, but they weren't quite living up to what God had created them to be, to be a blessing to the nations in the world. And in Jerusalem that day, Jesus, the living Word of God, declared that He would raise the true temple of God not made with human hands. And so when we allow Him to transform our lives as His disciples, He empowers us to become part of the exciting story of His kingdom too. We allow Him to become the center of our lives. Rosa and Jaime are also part of this story. Rosa, Jaime, and I were walking by parked cars on one end of a central patio between two large apartment buildings near our Hispanic church, Iglesia Wesleyana Amistad Cristiana, Wesleyan Church Christian Friendship in Carmel, Indiana. And we were inviting people to a concert that weekend. These people were all immigrants around us, and the sun had just gone down, and nearly all the residents were Latinos, and many of them were out, and there was laughter by the kids. They were playing frisbee and tag and soccer, and there were clusters of adults all around the patio, standing or sitting, 
some of them just chatting, some drinking, some smoking, some even playing soccer themselves. And uh, then Jaime says to us, look, there's someone in that car. Hola, Jaime said as he approached the car and he was holding out a flyer to give to them. And after a few minutes of chatting with them, Jaime calls to Rosa and me and says, hey, come over here. And the driver, Darío, got out and opened the rear passenger door. Look in here, he said. By then it was dusk and hard to see, and it took a, a little bit, a few seconds for our eyes to adjust, but there we saw a small girl, maybe two or three, hugging a blanket, curled up and crying, and saying, quiero mi mamá, I want my mommy. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a grandfather now, and whenever I see a child that young crying for their mother, uh, I have to fight back tears. And Darío explained, the police took her mother away yesterday, but I couldn't understand where they said they were taking her. Well, that took me back to when we lived in Chiclayo. We were there for like 10 years. We'd just arrived. And frankly, what it's like to be in a place where you just really don't understand a whole lot of anything that's going on. And sometimes you feel helpless and desperate. My heart went out to, to Darío. And uh, so I said, well, tell me more about it. And so he handed me a crumpled piece of paper. And he said, here's the phone number they gave me. And so I took the crumpled piece of paper and started making phone calls. And soon we learned that the little girl's name was Vanessa and her mother's name was Araceli. And Rosa started talking to Vanessa and soothing her and comforting her. And Jaime started chatting with Darío and his companion Manuel. And while they were talking and, and just caring for them, it took me over an hour on the phone to track down where Araceli was being held. Turns out the, that the Hancock County Police had arrested her and then transferred her to the Marion County Jail for processing, and it would take several days before she could be released. Well, here's what I want to mainly underscore. While I was on the phone, Jaime was sharing Jesus with Darío and Manuel. And I looked over as I was calling. I kind of wished I could have been there, because at one point, Jaime has his hands on the shoulders of Darío and Manuel, and he's praying over both of them and entrusting them to the Lord and sharing Jesus. And meanwhile, Rosa is comforting little Vanessa and assuring her that her mother would be back soon. The following week, Darío and Araceli and Vanessa visited our church, and we rejoiced at how they were embracing faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We were invited into their home, and we offered to help them with food and clothing. But what I want to underscore here, for my close friends Rosa and Jaime at our Hispanic church in Carmel, coming to the States from their home in Guatemala, was the beginning of a new spiritual pilgrimage. Like Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, they had packed up everything they owned. They had left behind their family and traditions and lands and memories and hadn't been able to go back and visit since then. And they set out on a pilgrimage without knowing where they would spend the rest of their lives, and yet they believed that God was calling them. So they decided to follow Him wherever He led. Well, today, as Christ continues to transform them, they too, my friends and brothers and sister in Christ, Ros and Jaime, are also reaching out and touching others as part of the living body of Christ, the church. If I were to make a confession, I'd have to confess that I too sometimes forget and get centered on things and traditions and stuff and habits, and God's got to call me back. My group of first-year experienced students, along with most of us here, can also identify with Abraham. We leave our homes and move to a new place, 
And it gives us a fresh opportunity to examine the center and foundations of our lives in faith. And so I invite you to reflect together with me this morning as we draw to a close. Are you building your life on the temporal things of this world that are centered in locations and buildings and things that are made with human hands? Are you depending on your own ideas and plans and abilities and efforts? Or are you putting your personal trust in the living Word of God, who is Jesus the Christ? Well, my prayer for you today is that God will give you the courage to put your complete trust for your life and your future in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is the real temple of God and the only sure foundation for our lives. Do that by beginning each day in His Word. Do that by opening your hearts continually as you go from class to class and as you interact with your friends. Open your hearts to hear His voice and continually ask to allow Him to guide your steps and then be ready to respond and also ready to help those around us. May God bless you as you do that in His name.